Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Walpaw and we've got a really fun episode for you today. I've got two guests with me. We have Dr. Eva Ritzel, who's the Director of Intraoperative Neuromonitoring here at Johns Hopkins Hospital and an Associate Professor of Neurology. And back with me, we have Dr. Allison Russo, who is one of our anesthesia uh, attendings. And we are going to do a joint uh, episode on intraoperative neuromonitoring, which is something that is often tested, and certainly you'll see it in any kind of uh, cases that you do with spines, with cranies, um, and a variety of others as well that we'll talk about today. So to both of you, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So let's jump in. And Eva, I'm going to start with you and just ask you um, to tell us a little bit about what neuromonitoring is. There may be some people who uh, haven't yet experienced it or seen it. And let's just start. What is it? What do we mean when we talk about neuromonitoring? Yeah. So thank you for that question. So neuromonitoring is um, basically a technique by which we use um small electrical signals to mimic the electrical signals that would usually send from the brain or to the brain uh, while the patient is awake. And we generate them artificially while the patient is asleep. And that allows us to test the integrity of the nervous system that is currently um, in the field, potentially under repair or at risk from a repair uh, around it. Great. So basically we're trying to make sure that if a part of the neuro system or the, the neurons and the pathways, either sensory or motor or other, is at risk, we'd like to know, are we getting close to causing damage so we can avert that damage? Right, exactly. So therefore it is important that our approach um, is such that the signal generation is on one side of the surgical field and the signal uh, recording is on the other side of the surgical field. And as long as the signal gets through, we think, okay, we're good, and the patient will wake up fine. Great. So uh, obviously if they're operating on the spine, we can have one side can be the brain, the other side can be the foot, and we would then make sure that signals get back and forth. Right, exactly. Or it can be for, for motors, it would be the brain to the foot. For sensories, it would be the foot to the brain. Great. All right. And so since we've touched on that, maybe let's um, tell me a little bit about, we, you just mentioned sensories and motors. Tell me a little more about those. And, and those are two modalities, um, two ways to measure. So tell me a little bit about what that means. What is a sensory? What is a motor? And are there others that we measure? Yeah. So um, we 
typically run sensory and motor evoke potentials together. A sensory evoke potential has been around for um, quite a while, and that's where you stimulate a nerve, a sensory nerve, um, at the foot or at the hand um, and record the signal over the uh, sensory cortex. And the MEPs are uh, a newer addition to our arsenal, um, but have been now also around for for quite some time. And that's where a signal is generated close to the motor cortex or um, on the motor axon, and is recorded from muscles in the periphery, the arms or the legs, um, or even the face, um, if if you will. And so these are evoke potentials, so that means we generate the signal and we record it on the other side. Um, a bear or a brainstem auditory evoked response is um, also an evoked potential. That one is not generated with um, little electrical or pain stimulation or other electrical stimulation, but with click stimulation because you try to activate the um, auditory nerve and then record that from needles that pick up signal at various points along the brainstem. Um, all of these are... Uh, generated and recorded intermittently, but we also follow EEG and EMG um, sometimes for uh, surgeries, and these signals are, of course, mini electrical discharges that are generated automatically by the brain or the muscle, and so we don't need to do anything to uh, generate them. They uh, just need to be recorded, and they um, are streaming continuously, essentially. Great. All right. So just to sum up, so we've got sensory evoked potentials, which are, I think, referred to as SSEPs, right? Somatosensory evoked potentials. We've got MEPs, which are motor evoked potentials. We've got BAERs, which are brainstem auditory evoked responses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or BAEPs, brainstem auditory evoked potentials. Gotcha. Potentials. Okay. And so that is, now those I'm a little less familiar with, but it sounds like what you're saying, you're going to essentially make a noise near the patient's ear and then measure whether there is a response along the auditory nerve. Along the auditory nerve or and the brainstem. And the way where, and then, okay, and then EEG, of course, we're familiar with EEG is, is uh, measured uh, Spontaneous by, brain waves, exactly. And then EMG are? Muscle potentials. Muscle potentials. And so these things you don't need to provoke, you just measure. Mm-hmm. Um, how, so we'll get a little later into what kind of surgeries one might use, which of these four. Let me ask you for the uh, actual mechanics of it, you're putting uh, needles into the patient to measure and the needle is going near a nerve? So um, in order to generate the signal, the needle needs to go close to where the signal is generated. So for SSCPs, that would be near a nerve. Uh, for MEPs, it would be over uh, in the scalp over the um, uh, motor cortex. And for the recording, it's the reverse. For SSCPs, it's going to be over the sensory cortex. And for uh, the motors, it's going to be in the muscles where you want to record the signal. Gotcha. All right. So you're putting um, some electrodes above areas, needles where they need to be, and you're uh, an e- when we think of an EEG, you're putting, you know, if you're if you're doing an EEG on a patient, for example, who may be seizing, those are just essentially stickers that go on the on the head, right? They're not needles that go in. But if you have a needle, it just gets you closer to where you want to be. So the the needle has the advantage that I mean, the patient is sleeping, so they don't feel the pain from the needle. And uh, with the needle electrode, we have um, a better impedance um, during the the surgery, basically, and so that's the way to go. Great. So you're you're closer to where you want to be. This is, uh, I would say, similar to if we're trying to measure twitches uh, to assess the neuromuscular blockade. 
sometimes if people have a lot of soft tissue, it can be hard. Uh, and I haven't actually had to do it often, but I have done it where you have sometimes if you put needles in, you'll get better responses. So um, a yeah, similar. We, we monitor twitches every time also. So if you need an yes. actual twitch count from a muscle, we have it. That is a super convenient aspect of having you guys around is that um, both two things I would say. One is you can tell us the twitches without us having to do it. And then also you can help us with depth of anesthesia, uh, if you, at least if you're looking at EEG. Yep. And we make use of that all the time in the <laughs> ORs. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's really nice. Um, all right. Just out of curiosity, before we move on, do you want to say a few words about how kind of you got interested in this? I mean, there are obviously there's a wide array of um, specialties within neurology. What got you interested in, uh, in specifically in neuromonitoring? Yeah, so I think um, I'm fundamentally a signal person, so I started out being very interested in EEG, and that's why I started doing epilepsy, but basically for the EEG technique, and I love EEG, and I do continuous EEG as well. Um, and then the opportunity... Um, uh, presented itself to learn IUM, and I was very excited about it. I like to help patients that are critically ill um, go through a difficult part of their illness, and um, that's possible with um, IUM as well as EEG. Great. So let's talk a little about what is being measured. So when you are uh, you're measuring sensories, motors, whatever it is that you're measuring, what is actually kind of coming across on your screen? And are there components to that that, that might be useful for people to know? So on the screen, um, we are typically looking at traces that are uh, generated uh, from the uh, recording needle. That are, that are two, typically two um, needles kind of um, linked together. And then the, uh, the trace displays the uh, uh, voltage difference at the um, two electrodes. And so then you uh, can see how um, high this excursion is. That would be the amplitude of the signal and at what time point the excursion begins and that would be the latency of the signal. And there are uh, typical standard measures for it. We don't hold our patients to it. Every patient has their own control. But we know roughly where to expect that signal and how big it may be so we can set our screen up to optimally display it. And then we um, optimize it for that particular patient and follow it over time. So amplitude and latency are, are two big things, and that certainly comes up on anesthesia exams. So uh, are those measuring different things? Uh, does a change in amplitude tell you something different than a change in latency, or do they tend to trend together? So for um, the, the terms amplitude and latency are used mostly for uh, somatosensory evoke potentials and uh, brainstem auditory evoke responses. Um, where basically the latency tells you how long the signal has to um, travel ac across um, to get to the point of recording, and the amplitude is sort of the strength of the signal, how good it is, how many um, uh, uh, how many axons transport the signal. And so um, the amplitude is uh, paramount for SEPs and bears. If you lose amplitude, you're basically saying you lose the signal. If you lose latency of the latency, you don't lose it. Usually it increases when the signal gets weaker, uh, for lack of a better word. And that um, can be due to temperature changes, for example. So it may not necessarily mean that the signal itself is affected, but that the environment has changed. Although if you have a latency change that affects only one signal, 
and your control signals ha have uh, a consistent latency, then you would be worried about a latency change being um, significant as well. Okay, great. So really quick, I just don't want us to forget that the other modality people may hear about are visual evoke potentials. We talked about this a little before we started recording. Visual evoke potentials we don't really do because uh, you wanted to say a few words about, about the challenge with visuals. Yeah, so the challenge um, during uh, surgery is that you have to have a paradigm that, you know, usually visually evoked potentials require the patient to look actively at a checkerboard and the patient is asleep. So, you know, you would basically present a passive stimulus through um, closed eyelids. And so that's one challenge. And then the other challenge is that they're highly effective, uh, affected by anesthesia, very sensitive to anesthesia. Right. And I have seen that come up on, for example, in training exams where they may ask which modality is most uh, sensitive to anesthetics. And the answer, if they give you as an option, would be visual evoked potentials. Um, since we're on the topic, are there uh, putting visuals aside between sensory, motor, and brainstem? Uh, is there a modality that is kind of second in terms of how sensitive it is to anesthetics? So um, MEPs are incredibly challenging to get because um, you have to basically optimize signals transition across different types of synapses in order to get the signal there. So you have to worry about um, the transition at the alpha motor neuron, and you have to optimize your anesthetic for that. And then you have to worry about the transition across the neuromuscular junction, and you have to optimize um, your twitches for that. So um, the MEP is therefore another signal that's somewhat fragile, even though it's acquired uh, very quickly with, you know, just a little click. But it's it's uh, it's a more difficult signal to sustain over a long surgery. Okay, so motors more sensitive to mm -hmm. anesthetics than sensory, and similar brainstem evoke potentials I think are, are fairly sen robust. Yeah, they're yeah. Fairly robust. So the least sensitive. So that's good because that may come up on an exam as well. All right, so uh, you're looking at amplitude and latency. Um, and those things can be affected by a variety of things. You mentioned temperature, at least for latency. Um, are there other factors that can affect these things? Are anesthetics, obviously. Um, other things that you think of that can affect the readings? Yeah, so, um, I mean, anesthetics are, of course, um, a, a big thing, and um, obviously Allison's going to talk about that. And um, it's also important to know that different patients react differently. So for some patients, one anesthetic may be great in keeping the signals steady, and in the next patient, that's going to be a terrible choice, and you need to adjust accordingly. Um, other things are just, as we talked about, temperature, blood pressure, um, basically make sure that the signal, that the, uh, sorry, the tissue is perfused very well. That's important. So it's not necessarily a direct effect on blood pressure on the signal, but a, an effect on blood pressure on on perfusion and therefore the uh, signal integrity. And they're sort of, I mean, generally speaking, the better the patient feels, the better our signals are. So anything that makes the patient feel bad <laughs> will have an impact on our signals. And right. just to piggyback on that too, patient, patient baseline factors, things like if patients have significant diabetic neuropathy, mm -hmm. that's going to be affecting their signals. Um, if they have any baseline nerve ischemia, maybe from hypoperfusion or from other um, other causes, um, if a patient has a tourniquet on for whatever reason, um, that may compromise flow to the to the limb. Great. So basically we're saying the sicker the patient, the potentially worse the um, signals are going to be. And so that gets even to what you were saying about the baseline. So you said every patient is their own baseline. When do you get a baseline reading? 
So um, that's uh, actually a, a very good question. So theoretically, you could get a baseline as soon as the patient is asleep because that's when they don't feel the pain anymore from the signal generation. Um, but there are two problems with that, and one is that um, the anesthetic is not at equilibrium yet, so therefore your reading may be different than what it is during the rest of the surgery. And then secondly, the patient is not positioned yet, and particularly when the p- patient needs to be uh, positioned in a prone position, then um, having all the wires already hooked up because they have to go from the needle that's stuck into the patient to an amplifier, then um, you would have to, uh, you'd wrap the patient up in the wires essentially if you just turn them around. So um, if we need to get pre and post positioning signals, which is sometimes desirable, I mean, actually it's probably desirable all the time, um, but particularly desirable when the patient has pre-existing conditions that uh, would put their um, systems, their um, their CNS system at risk during positioning, then you want to do this. You have to get your signals, roll up all the wires, fix them to the patient, turn the patient, uncoil the wires, and get signals um, after positioning. And that adds a minimum of 30 minutes to the surgery. And so often surgeons want to be fast, um, and we therefore only take our um, first signals after the patient is properly positioned if there's no positioning risk. And then we take our actual baseline once the exposure is complete in order to give the anesthetic um, a chance to reach equilibrium. Great. So you want to get an idea of when this patient is under anesthesia, what are the motors and sensories or whatever you're measuring going to look like and that way, if something changes, as long as the anesthetic hasn't cha- had taken a major change, we think this is not from the anesthetic. And I guess what we didn't talk about just in terms of how this is actually done or what, what the point is, we do this because if you're operating near nerves, like the spinal cord, for example, then if your signals start to change, the worry is the surgeon may be impinging on those nerves. Yes. And so if you see a change in the signal, you would alert the surgeon that their signals are changing and they would then in theory stop what they're doing um, or alter what they're doing and hopefully get the signals back. Yeah. And I mean, hopefully be able to reverse the intervention that they've just done in order to get the signals back. Great. All right, Allison, let's turn to you for a minute and let me ask you what, um, when you're using, uh, when you're planning an anesthetic or when you're thinking about different surgeries, maybe let's start with what surgeries would lend themselves to certain types of modalities of measuring? Sure. So especially when we talk about somatosensory evoked potentials, motor evoked potentials, we're doing those a lot for our spine surgeries. Uh, These can be for fusions of various kinds, intradural tumors that are being resected. Um, We sometimes do them for intracranial procedures as well. The craniotomies that sometimes we do, uh, aneurysm clippings will certainly monitor SSCPs as well as the EEGs for those. So those are some that we will use the SSCPs and MEPs for. Um, ones that we might surveil the EEGs for, we tend to do those for the carotid endarterectomies, especially if we do a lot of these here while patients are asleep, but certainly the gold standard is patients being awake so they can tell you if they're having changes. Um, and we will also do them for the aneurysm clippings as well. And that's EEG? EEG. Okay. That's correct. EMG, will, EMG we will also do for the spine surgeries. 
And is there an advantage to, let's say you're doing SSEPs and MEPs, is there an advantage to adding EEG to that? Yes. I'm going to let um, Eva so, answer that. Yeah, <laughs> yes, so there is an advantage um, because um, EEG is very helpful for MEPs as a surrogate marker of uh, suppression at the alpha motor neuron. So if you ha- get into burst suppression from propofol, then you probably have put the patient into anesthetic depth that is not required uh, for the surgery, and you are uh, starting to impact the MEPs for sure because if they burst suppression on the brain, then that means that their alpha motor neurons are also suppressed and don't transmit the signal uh, very well anymore. Great. So that's really important. So if, for example, your uh, you lose your signals or your signals decrease quite a bit and your EEG shows profound depth of anesthesia, it would make you think this is probably, or at least maybe, the anesthesia, not what the surgeon just did. Right, exactly. So you would immediately say, please lighten up, and we'll see whether we get our signals back. Great. All right. And how about EMG? Are there th- what, when would you add EMG to other modalities? Yeah, so EMG is um, classically done for uh, lumbar spine, looking at um, irritation of the uh, cord equina, and also for screw stimulations when pedicle screws are being placed. Um, some surgeons like to do them for thoracic spine as well, or uh, for um, cervical spine, particularly for irritation of the um, of the nerves there. Um, EMG has also shown to sometimes give a sort of warning, random or rather pronounced burst of firing before there is a cord injury. So even in um, cord um, surgeries, you can get a firing followed by MEP loss as a classical sign of uh, a cord injury. And the, then the, the firing would be nonspecific in all muscles, which is what I mean by random. And then you, you'd have a, an additional uh, piece of evidence that there's probably something going on with the spine. Okay, so it's additional evidence. Spinal cord. It may even precede loss of motors. Yes, okay. or spinal cord injury. Okay, great. Now, are there times when you would only use EEG and EMG and not motors and sensories? Um, you can only use EEG sometimes, um, and then that would be, for example, during epilepsy surgery when you want to do spike chasing or when you want to look for after discharges when the surgeon is doing uh, language mapping with an Ogerman stimulator, for example. Um, only EMG would be done for lumbar spine surgeries when you really don't think that you have a uh, spinal cord risk, but you want to place pedicle screws and potentially stimulate them. Um, SEPs are not very sensitive for root injury, so they're usually only done when cord injury is at risk. Gotcha. Okay, so that's important too. All right, so Allison, let me ask you, when we're, when we're thinking about our anesthetic, um, how do you plan an anesthetic with when you know? How does it affect your anesthetic planning when you know uh, that neuromonitoring is going to be done? And does it matter which kind of neuromonitor? Sure. So it absolutely mat- It absolutely depends on what kind of neuromonitoring we're going to be doing. And in my practice, I always talk to my neuromonitoring colleagues to find out what are we monitoring, what's important, and then I also have a baseline understanding of where the patient is starting from in terms of their neurological baseline. And so those kinds of things sort of go into my my planning. Um, and then understanding how our anesthetics are going to be affecting their signals is very important. So um, you can you can tailor your anesthetic any way that you want. I'll, 
some, a lot of places will only do propofol infusions and remifentanil infusions, especially for their spines, because those aren't going to be changing your SSCP or MEP signals as much as your inhalational anesthetics. The um, inhalational anesthetics, especially at high concentrations, greater than half to one MAC, are really going to be um, increasing the latency and decreasing the amplitude of your SCP signals. And then also high doses of nitrous oxide are going to be doing similar things to those SCP signals. And so a TIVA technique may be better if you're concerned about the SSCPs during the case. Uh, MEPs as well, actually, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, uh, so M- MEPs definitely your inhalational anesthetics, even at lower concentrations, are going to be affecting those. Really, because we said they're more sensitive, right? Yes. So okay, so yeah, inhaled anesthetics, including nitrous, have a, a significant effect on um, certainly motors, but even sensories. Yes. Okay. Yep. So more, yeah, as Eva said, more so on the motors than on the sensories, but it you really. Even at low concentrations, your MEPs are going to be affected with the inhalationals. So if your baseline signals are poor with your MEPs, I'll even do a TIVA technique from the start. Okay. Of some of those. Um, and TIVA, is that propofol? You, you mentioned in Remy. Do you ever use ketamine? I'll often use ketamine for my spines. Yeah, and what so, effect does ketamine have on uh, on the monitoring? Well, so ketamine... Ketamine is interesting in that it has slightly different effects than some of our other anesthetics. So ketamine can, actually, can, in theory, potentially increase your latency and maybe increase your amplitude, um, which is slightly different than some of our some of our other anesthetics, where propofol, for example, is going to be decreasing your amplitude and increasing your latency. So ketamine is a little bit different in that regard. So ketamine can actually increase amplitude, which would suggest maybe be helpful to the neuromonitoring Potentially. And then, and you're saying, but it would also, it would still increase latency. Mm, Correct. Okay. So like inhaled anesthetics would increase latency, but different effect on amplitude. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Um, Same thing if you're... um, if you're doing BIS monitoring, which we're not talking about specifically for this particular talk, but if you're monitoring BIS, which is a um, calculated EEG, your ketamine and nitrous oxide could potentially artificially elevate your BIS monitoring. So that's also something to be aware of when you're running ketamine for some of these surgeries. Okay. So you're, if you know there's going to be motors, you often are going to do a TIVA so that you don't have that inhaled anesthetic affecting your, uh, your signals. Your TIVA is going to include propofol and ketamine, plus Maybe minus Remy? Plus or minus Remy fentanyl or another opioid. So you could choose to use fentanyl instead. Um, I, I prefer to use fentanyl for my spines because I think it it does provide better, better longer-acting analgesia than Remy fentanyl, but Remy yep. fentanyl is not, is not necessarily a poor choice either. Okay. And what, if any, effect do opiates have on um, sensory and motor monitoring? So opioids are really going to be having minimal effect on on the neuromonitoring modalities that we're discussing. Um, the paralytics, on the other hand, those will definitely affect your motor evoked potentials. Sometimes we're even asked to give a little bit of paralytic when we're monitoring EMG um, because if baseline signals are quite noisy, it can quiet down that mm. baseline signal to allow us to watch for any significant changes in those signals. So um, in general, I would say try to avoid the neuromuscular blockers if MEPs are very important, but you may be asked to give a little bit of a neuromuscular blocker for EMG monitoring. Okay. So that's really important. And uh, I think sometimes people will say, 
give some paralytic, but make sure there's at least two or three twitches. Sometimes people will avoid them completely. It may be, it may vary from institution to institution as well. Yeah, so we d um, generally prefer at least two twitches for EMG or MEPs. Um, obviously, the more twitches we can have, the better, but then there is the potential of you know having too much firing or something like that, which can get in the way. Um, generally speaking, we prefer then an infusion over intermittent boluses because they kind of you turn the signal analysis into yo-yoing through right. big and small signals, and that does not help the patient as much because we don't have a, a, a good, robust signal to follow. Yeah. So, Eva, let me ask you, if you got to design your ideal anesthetic um, for cases that you're involved in, what would you have us give? Would it be a TIVA? If so, you know, would it be ketamine or not? So, I mean, we want to obviously not just the best for us, but also the best for the patient. Mm -hmm. And sometimes um, it, it might be preferable to um, give gases or something because patient can wake up easier and so on and so on. Um, really, for long surgeries, uh, I would always prefer TIVA because gases, um, even though theoretically they kind of can, quote, unquote, blow off very quickly, for the signals, that doesn't really happen. So mm. um, in over long cases, you really want to have TIVA in order to keep any signal um, steady, particularly MEPs. So if it's a long spine case with with MEPs, um, that would be the ideal anesthetic. Okay. And as Eva said earlier, your baseline signals, you might have a certain level for your baseline signals. But if you're running an inhalational anesthetic as your primary anesthetic, over time, your signals may get get worse because of the buildup of that inhalational anesthetic in the system. And so, um, you know, I, I completely agree for those very long surgeries. It, it's reasonable to consider a TIVA and then the emergence at the end of something just to be aware of. So you titrate off your, your IV anesthetic appropriately. Right. And again, helpful to have uh, the monitoring on so that we can get a feel, especially for the EEG of how deep we are. Yeah. And then it's always important to communicate. So, uh, we want to have good closing signals. So our last signal, we want to be just really great because then we can show that the signal lasted till the end. So if you do change from TIVA to gases uh, for wake up, just let us know so we can take closing a little early to make sure that we can document this correctly and the last signal doesn't look destroyed right. because the anesthetic just changes and then you know it doesn't give you the information that you're looking for. Right. And another thing I wanted to mention, what's important for our collaboration is the bite block for MEPs mm -hmm. that um, it's important for us to remember to communicate to anesthesia to say hey we need it and it's important for you to be aware of it and keep it in place over the course of the surgery. And say a word maybe about why Allison why, why, why do we need to have not just a bite block but a really good one? Yeah so I I will always, I always for any of the spine surgeries especially where I know that we're going to be monitoring MEPs I'll create a nice good soft bite block I don't want a hard bite block that the patient is clamping down on when that masseter muscle contracts with the with the signals and I always make sure that I have it firmly between the, the back molars on mm -hmm. one side um, and the reason for that is that we even if a patient has a little bit of paralytic on board, that masseter muscle, when it's stimulated, can be powerful enough that the patient under anesthesia can bite through their tongue. They can have yeah. cheek injuries as well. And so, so that bite block is crucial during these cases. And then when we're, when we're positioning the patient prone, 
and you're doing your assessment of the patient's eyes, making sure the eyes are free, making sure your endotracheal tube isn't kinked, I'll always also make sure that my bite block is still in an appropriate position. And if it's not, then you have to do something to reposition to get that in. Yeah. Not the worst idea to tape it in. Um, I, I will, uh, at least back when I used to do more spines, I would do that too. Um, Eva, I want to ask you um, about your opinion on ketamine. Uh, if you know, When we're talking again about that ideal anesthetic, assuming that it, you know, there's no contraindication for the patient, since it's got that interesting effect of increasing amplitude potentially, but, but also increasing latency, would you like to have ketamine on board if you could? Is it helpful to you? Yeah, I've seen it work for, uh, for MEPs. Um, and whether or not, I mean, so the, the, it, prob- it doesn't manufacture MEPs when there are none, but it makes them easier to see and easier to follow. And that's kind of what you want because it, it helps you uh, be reassured about the fact that you still have your signal. And do we know why it increases latency and amplitude? I mean, you'd think if it increased amplitude, it might decrease latency, but uh, no. So, um, you're, Allison is the expert on this, but um, my understanding from um, a very nice review article that I read is that um, it depends on the receptor a uh, anesthetic uh, acts upon, and I'm sure you can say more about that. It, it probably has something to do with the NMDA receptor, receptor antagonistic properties that's, that's um, affecting how those signals are being transmitted in some way. Okay, great. Um, Allison, do you want to talk about what happens? Uh, you're in a case, and the, the neuromonitoring folks say to you, um, you know, we're losing signals or we lost signals. What do, what, do, what do we do about that? So one of the first things that I'll do is try to try to assess, is this a global change? Is it a sudden change, or has it been happening over time? If we're running an inhalational anesthetic and the signals have been decreasing globally over time, it's probably... Just that anesthetic buildup. If it's if it's sudden, if it's in one extremity, if it's only in the lower extremities, then I'm concerned that something has happened either from a surgical perspective or a hemodynamic change, or there might be something else going on with the patient. And I also want to make sure that we haven't changed our anesthetic significantly. So have we deepened our anesthetic for some reason? Um, did we make any sudden changes that could be affecting those signals? So making sure that nothing nothing about our anesthetic has changed. Um, and then I want, if it's real, I want to take steps in order to correct that. So in general, you want to increase the blood pressure, increase perfusion to the brain or to the spinal cord, um, depending on what you're concerned about, correct any hypoxia, if any hypoxia or hypotension is present, correct hypothermia. I would certainly send a set of labs, see where is our hemoglobin? Have we been bleeding aggressively? Maybe the patient's anemic and their oxygen carrying capacity is significantly decreased. Um, and then also talking with the surgical team and making sure that they're aware of any of those signal changes. And maybe they need to adjust their either retraction on the spinal cord or adjust a screw placement if it's too close to one of the nerve roots, if we're monitoring EMG. Um, if none of those factors are improving our signals or changing the signals in a positive way, we would also potentially need to consider doing a wake-up test, and that would be done in coordination with the surgical team, too. And so is that what it sounds like? Uh, we would actually try to wake the patient up and see if signals come back as they wake up? So it's exactly what it sounds like. It, it can be a very dangerous thing to do. Um, it 
if your signals are have decreased significantly and they're not coming back despite all these other efforts, um, you do wake the patient up in the middle of the surgical procedure. Our goals are to emerge them safely, uh, make sure that they're comfortable during that time, but we also want to make we're, we're trying to assess whether it's a true signal change or whether they still have their, their motor function intact. And so we um, will lighten our anesthetic. You want to have a gradual wake up. These patients, as they're emerging in the middle of a case, you want to make sure that they're still comfortable. You might administer an opioid at that time too. Um, and I would probably administer an anxiolytic at the same time once once we get our, our signals back. Um, I would say that there can be complications with the wake-up test. Patients' endotracheal tubes can come out, especially when they're prone and perhaps agitated and mm-hmm. moving. The lines can become disrupted, so you have to be very, very careful. Yeah. And sometimes if it's a posterior spine surgery and you have to emerge them for some reason, you have to be cognizant of the fact that they might be in pins and the surgical team may need to come around to your side, the anesthesia side of things, and take the patient out of pins, stabilize the neck, manually mm. so that the patient doesn't doesn't move or cough while they're still in pins and cause further neurologic damage. Gotcha. Yeah, and we're um, we're trying to typically continue to run signals as the patient emerges, obviously not when the patient is fully awake, in order to see whether signals already come back when anesthetic is lowered. And sometimes it's really surprising. You have um, a, a spine surgery, a thoracic spine surgery, um, and you lose your leg signals and the arm signals are still there, so you think this is definitely a real change. But it was a patient who was very sensitive to an anesthetic that um, affected different parts of the um, spinal cord differentially somehow, and you lose your leg signals, but when the anesthetic is lowered, they come back, and then you already know, okay, so this patient's going to be able to move. So it's not necessarily a, a failure of monitoring. It, it's, it's simply um, another um, example of when anesthetics and monitoring play together in, in, sort of a, in sort of a strange way. And then when you put the patient back to sleep, it's important to take the lesson from the wake-up test. If the signals came back with reduced anesthetic, well, that means you can't put the patient back to the same anesthetic level because otherwise you're going to lose them again. Right. And you need to modify the technique or anesthesia needs to modify the technique in order to, um, to, to kind of continue to monitor that patient successfully. Um, one other thing I wanted to say about um, the blood pressure management with lost signals. So um, that's one of the, the really big things outside of the surgeon changing something in the surgery is where anesthesia can help us or can help the patient by helping perfusion to those structures at mm. risk. And it's then important to realize that um, usually when you have a critically perfused spinal cord, and you um, elevate the blood pressure and the signals come back, that in the immediate post-op period, it is important to keep the blood pressure high. To not just say, okay, great, we solved this with a blood pressure raise during the surgery, but now it's over and we can just drop that patient's blood pressure. They may need some time for their circulation to adapt to the new situation. And um, so, you know, when then the patient 
is not immediately woken up or, or left in coma or something like that, for example, after um, aortic uh, arch surgery, um, we don't want it to happen that when they finally wake up, the post-op period was the period when actually the infarct happened and we were obviously not monitoring anymore. Right. So those are the patients I sometimes get in the ICU where uh, we'll be asked to keep their blood, their map at 90 instead of 65, for right. example, for the first 24 to 48 hours. So I would... I was just going to echo that, that any time anytime we have this situation where we feel that there's compromise and we raise the blood pressure and the signals get better, um, in my practice, I'll start the patient on a phenylephrine drip just to make, to, or whatever vasopressor you choose to use, um, I tend to go to phenylephrine just to make sure that we're maintaining that that higher perfusion pressure and keep that going into the ICU period. And we do this all the time too when we're um, doing temporary clipping for aneurysms. So even if you're temporarily blocking that that blood flow and even if your signals are okay, once that temporary clip comes off, we still keep those pressures on the higher side because there's always the possibility that there could be some ischemia underlying that we don't want to um, potentially unmask. Yeah, great. Now, you mentioned an anxiolytic. So we talked about opiates having very little effect on signals. We talked about ketamine having an interesting effect of increasing amplitude and, and latency. We talked about uh, propofol, uh, unless you get sort of very high dose, um, being pretty friendly, uh, maybe causing some increase in latency and decrease in amplitude, but not as much as inhaled anesthetics. What about things like Versed? So would Versed, I assume, since it's a GABA agent, have a similar effect to propofol, or is it different? That one I'm not sure. Actually, I don't think that it has much of an effect similar to the opioids, but I would need to look that up. Okay. Eva, any idea? Yeah, so I think that usually it's you give something that's fairly short-acting, and so I don't think that in the scheme of things it has a big impact um, I mean, obviously, Verset will um, influence the, uh, the EEG, so mm-hmm. therefore, by uh, extrapolation, it would ultimately uh, affect other signals as well. But I think the fact that it's short-acting uh, prevents that from becoming a problem during the surgery. Okay. So during a wake-up test, you, I think what you said, Allison, is you'd wait, you'd get your signals back, and then give Verset. So, you know, you'd want to make sure you got the signals before clouding it, but then it's probably safe uh, for that brief period of action when you'd give the Verset. Um, all right. Are there other um, – uh, we talked about neuromuscular blockers, opiates, uh, anxiolytics, propofol, inhaled anesthetics, nitrous. Uh, and nitrous, you said, Allison, acts much like any other inhaled anesthetic in terms of uh, increasing latency and decreasing amplitude. Is that right? At high doses, greater than 50 greater than 50%, um, you're really going to see a change in your signals, increase latency and decrease in amplitude. Got it. All right. Great. Do either of you have any other things that we have not covered that you think um, are key points for folks to know? I think one of the key points um, is that we need to work as a team. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, I I think, <laughs> and I think that that's why we also wanted to do this episode together so that, you know, basically um, it's, it's not about anesthesia trying to, you know, not help us or we're kind of, throwing a wrench into um, the anesthetic protocol. It's about uh, working together and doing the best for the patient. Yeah. Yeah, and I I would echo that. I think um, collaboration in the operating room, especially with our with, from an anesthesia side with our neuromonitoring colleagues, um, that's huge. I'm constantly 
talking with them, checking in with them. Um, we were talking earlier about checking twitches and morbidly obese patients or patients where you just aren't going to be able to check your twitches very well. Talking with our neuromonitoring colleagues about, you know, hey, where are our twitches if we're using paralytic of some in some way? That can be very helpful. Or if the signals start changing, we need to work very closely together to figure out why are they changing? What happened? How are we going to make this better for the patient? So I think if we're spending the time and energy and resources to do this neuromonitoring, then we should work together to make sure that it leads to the best outcome possible for the patients. Absolutely. I remember very distinctly when I was a resident, there was a neuromonitoring uh, technician named Russ, and he would come all the time. He'd, he'd walk over to you know the anesthesia side, and he would say, you know, our, our signals are a little low. How's that propofol drip? You know, do you want to turn that down just a little bit? Or, you know, you got, you're almost in burst suppression. You could probably turn that down a little. And it was just so nice to have that communication. Um, and so I would agree with you too and encourage people, you know, uh, to, to talk, chat with everybody in the room and make sure that you know what's going on. They know what's going on and you work together as much as possible. I would say too that if I'm doing, and this is my personal preference, if I'm doing a TIVA technique for uh, a spine surgery, um, I will often place a BIS monitor on the patient so that I have another way of monitoring my depth of anesthesia. I know a lot of providers don't, but it, um, I feel better knowing that I have an extra layer there that I can that I can monitor. And I would say if you're going to do that, just make sure that it's safely positioned on the patient's forehead and make sure that you've appropriately padded the, the monitor cable itself so that it doesn't end up cutting into the patient's forehead. I have seen that too. Absolutely. Great point. All right. Anything else? Great. Thank you both so much for doing this. It's fantastic. And uh, I love the uh, interdisciplinary uh, episode. We'll have to do more. Thanks for coming. Great. Thank you Thank for having you so us. Much. Thank you so much. All right. I think that was super high yield. Let us know what you thought. Check out the website at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. You can leave a comment that we can all learn from. You can also see all the other episodes. You can join the mailing list. And of course, you can get a hold of me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. If you are a fan of the show, check out the show on iTunes where you can leave a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you want to support the making of the show, you can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. And even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. If you prefer to do one-time or self-controlled pledging, you can also go to paypal.me slash ACRAC. That's paypal.me slash A-C-C-R-A-C, and you can make any donation that you want there as well. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much to all of you who are already patrons or have already made donations. And, of course, big thanks to Brian Park for the outlines he does for some of the episodes. And to all of you, Happy New Year. I hope you had a fantastic holiday season and that your 2019 is off to a great start. Thank you for listening. For the ACRAC podcast, for Drs. Russo and Ritzel, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.